So if you can turn again to Genesis chapter 45, Genesis chapter 45, the great reunion. This is the time of year uh, for this kind of thing. Uh, families uh, get together, uh, time which uh, is associated with peace and happiness. Uh, but the reality on the ground is, is actually very often different from uh, what we expect uh, Christmas to connect with. Uh, some, some charity helplines uh, report a doubling of calls uh, because of the stress created at this time of year. Uh, this is what one uh, single-parent charity called Gingerbread uh, says about the Christmas uh, period. Although Christmas is perceived to be a time of peace and happiness uh, for families, Stress, debt, and alcohol levels can create an unhappy alliance. Over the holiday period, cracks may appear in a family, in family relationships, particularly for individuals not used to spending a lot of time together. In some families, the breadwinner may be more accustomed to spending long hours at work rather than at home with her partner and children. Additionally, the pressure of providing expensive gifts can leave families with the prospect of paying off debts in the new year. The ensuing tension and increased drinking over Christmas can result in marital breakdown, as well as triggering domestic violence, which increases sharply during this time. These are sobering comments about the tensions that there are when folks come together. But in chapter 45 of Genesis, we have the account of a family reunion which worked. And it worked because God was in it, because the Holy Spirit uh, was bringing about reconciliation at a meaningful level and bringing together members of a family who had been alienated from one another and bringing them together in a wonderful God-bought reconciliation. Only the grace of God is able to bring about real and lasting change in the lives of people who had formerly hated one another. And chapter 45 is a, a really powerful chapter. In many ways, it's the climax of the Joseph story. The mysterious Egyptian uh, Prime Minister, second in command, what you will, reveals his identity. And then the, the dam which has been holding back Joseph's pent-up emotions over this long time suddenly bursts and tears of joy flood the brothers as they in turn gasp and stagger and embrace one another. Uh, the work of God in God's Spirit in their hearts is brought to completion. Uh, time gives an opportunity to have perspective on the providence of God over all these events. And grace goes on to make abundant provision for this newly reconciled family. And we're going to be considering these uh, things in turn. First of all, the reconciliation that God wrought in this family. And then uh, the, the healing power of providence, understanding providence, and then finally the provision of grace. 
Well, people speak a lot uh, these days. Unbelieving people speak a lot about reconciliation. Uh, they speak of healing ethnic tensions. Uh, they speak of uh, the importance of having wildly differing lifestyles coexisting. Uh, reconciliation between people who uh, have got very different worldviews. And very often, when the world talks about reconciliation, uh, they the one casualty is truth. Uh, there's no concern for uh, the, the real differences that may have caused a breach in the first place. But uh, these are simply to be swept under the carpet and people are to get along nicely with one another. And that kind of reconciliation is superficial, of course. It can't uh, stand to the strains of life as it really is. And God's reconciliation is very, very different. And we see uh, in Joseph continually the Christ figure. Joseph, as a type of Christ, is pushing us continually uh, to see uh, the work of Jesus, our great Redeemer. Jesus, who, like Joseph, uh, was despised by those he came to, uh, who was uh, laid very low, was humiliated before he rose again in exaltation and who receives and will receive at the end of the age the acclaim of all people. And Joseph uh, has put uh, his brothers in a series of tests uh, which mirror their past behavior in order to confront them with their sin, in order that they might acknowledge uh, their sin and that they might be led to uh, a healing, a reconciliation through forgiveness, through true forgiveness. <clears throat> and so, first of all, when they appear in Joseph's presence, they are accused of spying, just as Joseph himself had been accused of spying on his brothers. They now find that they are in that situation. He treats them with harsh words. Uh, he insists that they must leave Simeon as a hostage and return home, and that they must return to Egypt only if they have Benjamin with them. And uh, on the way back, they, of course, find that the, the, their money has been returned into their sacks. They wonder what on earth is going on, that they'll be perceived as thieves. And when they explain to their father Jacob this stranger's request, Jacob uh, is, is heartbroken at the thought of sending now uh, Benjamin down to uh, Egypt, and at the prospect of what he thinks will be the loss of a third son, Joseph, and then Simeon, and then Benjamin. Eventually, they persuade their father to allow them to go with Benjamin, and they are treated uh, royally in Joseph's palace. They dine like kings with Joseph, and it's all a bit crazy. They don't know what's going on here. Why uh, this special treatment, and how does he know so much about us? And on their return, the, the second time going back to Canaan, the steward, of course, catches up with them. They're accused of having stolen Joseph's cup. And indeed, it's found in Benjamin's sack. And as we said the last time, we have this final test, which more than any other places before them uh, the, the point at which they failed the last time. The point at which uh, it's easier for them to turn their backs on their brother and to come up with a, a story for their father that will cover over uh, what has happened. It would be so easy for them to let uh, Benjamin rot in an Egyptian prison and go back to Jacob and say, we couldn't do anything about this. Our hands were tied. 
But instead, God has wrought change, conversion in the lives of these people. And we have this impassioned plea from Judah that Joseph might accept him as a substitute and that uh, Benjamin might go free. He looks full on at the possibility of giving up his freedom of a life of servitude in Egypt and he is willing to pay the price that Benjamin might go free. It's this impassioned plea which makes Joseph realize that there has been a change, that God has worked the miracle, that they have indeed recognized their sinning against him and that they have come to that point uh, where they are ready uh, to turn around. And this comes, uh, 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 overwhelms Joseph. Uh, he's kept it in, as it were, up until now. Apart from that, that time when uh, seeing Benjamin, he had to withdraw from the room. But now uh, all these emotions uh, take over. Uh, he asks the Egyptian attendants to leave. They mustn't see what, what's going on for two reasons. Uh, firstly, it wouldn't look well on his brothers if they were to find out why it is that he is there. And also the Egyptians valued the, the, the icy cool demeanor. And uh, he knows he's going to lose it, and so they're sent out. And uh, the family business is kept family business. It's kept within the bounds of the family. And Joseph breaks down with loud and heartfelt sobbings so vehement that they are heard through the walls that the attendants who have been sent out hear him weeping and it gets to Pharaoh's household. It's interesting, isn't it? Uh, the place of our emotions in the believer's life. Uh, there is an important place for our emotions. We are people who are not simply... Uh, an intellect. We are emotional people as well as uh, willing people and thinking people. And our whole personality uh, is to be yielded to the Lord. Now, of course, there, there are those who go uh, in excess in, in the direction of the emotions so that uh, everything, every aspect of worship and, and service and so on is emotional and, and the mind uh, simply is put into neutral. Well, that's not a, a biblical position, but neither is the, the over-cerebral position where our emotions are never engaged. And we see in the Bible uh, the fact that God uh, knows and values and treasures the tears of his saints. Uh, so we have the, the psalmist, uh, David, uh, speaking of the, the value of his tears before God, record my misery. List my tears on your scroll. Are they not in your record? Of course they are. And then there's the weeping of Christian service, Psalm 126. They who sow in tears shall reap the joy. What a blessing it is in uh, a, a Christian service of worship uh, where there are genuine tears from uh, the people because the Holy Spirit is at work in bringing people under conviction and recognizing that things are changing. Or sometimes when there is that melting presence of the living Christ and waves of joy and love and gratitude so overwhelm us that we can do nothing to hold back the tears. 
And it is tears of joy that Joseph is shedding at this moment. Uh, it is such a wonderful experience for him to, to stand before his brothers and know that the, the old animosity has been done away with. They are not the people they once were. God has restored his flesh and bone to himself. And he weeps. Now, at this point, as you can imagine, his brothers are mystified. Here is this powerful Egyptian, effectively, practical purposes, he is lord over all Egypt. He's dealt with them in mysterious ways, from suspicion to accusation uh, to celebration. And now this Egyptian, who's supposed to value uh, retaining his cool, has dissolved into tears. He has lost it completely, and they're terrified in his presence. What is going on? And Joseph does three things. He tells him uh, who he is. I am Joseph. He asks for his father. Is my father still living? And he tells him, come close. Three significant things. Remember, Joseph is always pushing us forward to Christ. He's reminding us of, of Christ at every turn. And the revelation of himself to his brothers reminds us of the fact that uh, Jesus reveals himself to us in salvation. First of all, he reveals ourselves. He shows us as we really are. Emily, sit, sit in your seat, Perry. He shows us who we really are, and then he shows us himself as the Savior that we need in our sin. There is a taking away of the, the veil over our eyes to show us that Christ is the Savior. And then he goes on to melt our hearts. When Joseph speaks about his father again, he is in effect asking, he knows because he's asked before that Jacob is still alive. The question is now, is he living well? Uh, is he simply hanging on there or is he in good health? Our hearts are broken, are melted before God by chiefly the knowledge of the price that God has been willing to pay by giving us the son of his love. And so we have in the Gospels, we have uh, a number of occasions when the love of the father for the son is, is intimated for all to hear. This is how much the father loves the son at the baptism, at the transfiguration. On that occasion when the, 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 the people hearing thought it thundered. The Father is declaring the love for the Son. And as readers of the Gospel, we're to understand this is how much the Father loved the Son. And yet, He was willing to give the Son of His love as a price for our salvation. And the hardness of our hearts is melted away. What a flood of events is being processed in the brothers' minds. They had sold their brother to slave dealers specifically that they might not have had uh, the, the realization, the fulfillment of the dream 
that Joseph had of them bowing down before him. It's the one thing that they don't want to have. And yet it's the one thing that they have done again and again and again since going down to Egypt. We find uh, poignantly, we're told that they bowed down before him, they fell down before him. They're continually doing this. And now they're in uh, what is the most vulnerable position of all. Uh, This man who stands before them could have them lined up, could have their, their heads taken from their shoulders, and no one uh, would question his action. They are completely at his mercy. And instead of exacting vengeance on them, because, they, because he knows that they are the ones who conspired against him and sold him into slavery, he says instead, come close, come close. He invites them to come near to him. He wants to demonstrate to them his love for them. What amazing grace. We stand before Christ as guilty sinners with no defense that we can make uh, in his presence. Uh, We stand before one who will one day judge the living and the dead, uh, who has absolute right over our lives to dispose of us as he will. And he says to us in grace, come close, come close. And instead of enacting judgment, he brings us his grace. He bids every trembling sinner be at peace in his presence and believe that he is gracious towards us. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that a wonderful knowledge to have if you're Christ's? And they draw close. And Joseph continues to assure them uh, because he sees terror in their eyes. And he goes on, I am your brother Joseph the one you sold into Egypt. They're not getting let off the hook. Never mind it. Yes, they're guilty. But now, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. See what he's saying? He's saying, believe it. I'm not angry with you. We're at peace. Despite my knowledge of your sin, we're at peace. You're forgiven. He's wanting to reassure them. Isn't that what we often need as sinners before Christ? That it's so often a reassurance of the truth of our forgiveness that we lack and need to be reminded of. Wonderful words in Jeremiah 31, 34. I will remember their sins no more. This is God's promise to us that he will not cast up again our offenses. He has blotted them out like a cloud. He has hurled them into the depths of the sea. And he comes to reassure us, just as Joseph is reassuring his brothers who are terror-struck, shaking with awe, don't know what to believe, can't take it all in this sudden revelation. And he's urging peace in their hearts. Maybe tonight you need to claim that promise because it's been robbing you of your own peace. 
You need to go home and you need to read Jeremiah 31, 34. I will remember your sins no more. And then we come to a really important part of the, of the chapter now, which is looking at the practical use of the providence of God. Joseph goes on to allay their fears by, by working through the implications of God's providence. God's providence was wise and holy, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. It's a comprehensive term. And Joseph says, it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. God. God is the initiator. For two years now there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years there will be no plowing and reaping, but God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. And Joseph goes on, so then it was not you who sent me here. Isn't that amazing? Of course, at one level it was them. But Joseph is saying, you know, the truth is, at a deeper level, there was someone else with a plan. God, he made me father to Pharaoh of his entire household, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. It's not wonderful God-centered thinking that Joseph can trace back of human agents, the ultimate agent, the hand of God over every detail of his life. There has been a purpose to it all. And that purpose, Joseph tells us, was preserving a remnant. It's significant, isn't it, this, this remnant word here? Because this is identifying the fact that God is keeping his promise alive. God had made a promise to Abraham that he would have a line that would bless the world. And this promise has been under threat. Famine has threatened the promise famine and death, which could have wiped out the remnant. But God has intervened to keep the remnant. And to bring about a great deliverance. This is a great example, friends, to, to, to work out uh, just step by step the, the consequences of, of God being in control, even of the bad stuff. You know, it's easy for us sometimes to you know, when, when things work out in a good way, to say, oh, wonderful providence, isn't it? But we also need to be alert to the fact that God's providence is over the bad stuff as well. You know, that when good, things go badly for us, God, God's hand is also at work, ultimately, to bring about his good and his glory. So, if the brothers hadn't sold Joseph into slavery, he would never have got into Potiphar's house. If Joseph had never entered Potiphar's house, Potiphar's wife would never have wickedly accused him of rape. If Potiphar's wife had not falsely accused Joseph, he would never have been thrown into Pharaoh's prison. If Joseph had never entered the prison, he would never have interpreted the cupbearer's dream. Cupbearer who was in prison because of his own folly. If Joseph had never interpreted the cupbearer's dream, he would never have come to the attention of Pharaoh. 
if Joseph had never come to the attention of Pharaoh, he would never have become the second most important person in Egypt. And if he had not become that man, his family, along with others down in Canaan, would have perished through the famine. The seed, the promise to Abram, the seed of the woman, would all have been destroyed. You see what momentous events are hanging on this chain of bad things happening. Joseph had to go down, had to become a prisoner, and all the rest of God's purposes were to work out, and yet the sin belonged to man and not to God. You sold me into slavery, Joseph says. You know, today, many of us are halfway along a chain. And we don't, we're not yet at that point where we can understand what is going on, how it is that this, this chain of events, some of which are caused by our own folly and our sinfulness or our stubbornness, how these are ultimately going to lead to God's good being shown in our lives. Because that's the Romans 8.28 promise that every believer has. God's in control for his good. This is the wonderful doctrine of providence. And Joseph states it. Joseph states it better than any Westminster divine. It's stated in the, in the, 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 the nitty-gritty of, of, uh, of real life. God has ordained whatsoever comes to pass, and yet his divine decree encompasses the free decisions and actions of men. We are responsible for our sin, even although God uses sinful actions to work out his good purposes. And actions remain bad even when God uses them. That's basically what Paul's warning against in Romans 6 when he says, we can't sin so that grace may abound because our sin remains sin, but God is able to use even our sinful actions to work out his own good. John Calvin uh, speaks of those who question God's righteousness in employing sinful acts uh, of men. Uh, he does it in, in typically... Uh, robust fashion, away then with this dog-like impudence which can indeed bark at God's justice afar off but cannot touch it. Dog-like impudence. Friends, we avoid this dog-like impudence of questioning God's righteousness and instead we adore with Joseph the wisdom of God that is able even to use our folly for his own good purposes. Now, there are two chief uh, circumstances, two chief ways in which we can employ this doctrine of providence in our lives. We can employ the doctrine of God's providence in our lives when things are going against us. When we employ the doctrine of God's providence, it will keep us from being bitter when things are bad, if we hold on firmly to it. You see, at this point, Joseph could have become a seething mass of resentment. You know, He could have been lashing out at others and God 
because of all the past hurts in his life. Think how, uh, think how he could have exacted revenge in any way he wished. Now he was as powerful. And instead, instead of that resentment and bitterness, he chooses uh, to see things from God's perspective. He chooses to see his dark days as unnecessary, preliminary, in God's purposes to use him to do good. And that helps him to forgive and to encourage his brothers to do the same. Now, friends, we have a choice every time we go through uh, the yuck of life. We can either choose to see things purely from a human standpoint and become resentful because we've been badly treated. We can question God's righteousness. We can see that God is dealing us a bad hand. We can do that. Or we can look at it from heaven's perspective and acknowledge that God is sovereign over all our circumstances and will yet prove himself faithful in the bringing together for good of all the ups and downs in our life. So that's the first use of God's providence. It will keep us from bitterness when life is hard. And the second use is that it will keep us humble when life is good. It would have been very easy for Joseph to have taken great uh, pride uh, in his elevation to this chief rank. He is a father to Pharaoh. Amazing, isn't it? Egypt, the superpower of the day. Father to Pharaoh. Pharaoh uh, is advised and directed by Joseph. Lord over his household, everyone to go to Joseph and he will direct operations. Power is almost limitless. But you notice how again and again he says, God raised me up. God made me a father to Pharaoh. He recognizes the hand of God in uh, exalting him. The people who know God and who understand his providence will walk humbly before him. They will not be puffed up. They will not point to their giftedness, their hard work as the reason why they've got to where they are, but they will honor God and acknowledge him as uh, the, the one who has blessed them. And then lastly and briefly, <coughs> the provision of grace. The grace that reconciles us first to God through Jesus goes on to provide us with all that we could need. And we see that in the, the rapid movement as the chapter goes on uh, in, first of all, moving from uh, a joyous communion or uh, reunion of these people. Verses 14 and 15 are beautifully poignant verses. <coughs> then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept. Benjamin embraced him, weeping. And he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. Afterwards, his brothers talked with them. These people who at one time were at each other's throats are now blubbering away. They can't, they can't stop the crying and they're hugging one another and they're all best friends forever. It's a completely transformed situation and the wonderful very kind of mundane line at the end there and they talked with one another it's so telling isn't it because back in chapter 37 they could hardly speak to one another 
They couldn't abide to be in one another's presence. And now uh, Moses, under the, the divine hand, paints this picture of brothers who just want to talk and talk and recollect all that has gone on in each other's lives. They are wonderfully together. They've not simply been forced to get along with one another. They've found a joy in communion. And then Joseph tells them that not only is he happy that they're reconciled, he wants them to live near. He wants to provide for them and and for his father. And and so instructions are given for Jacob to come down and join them. And they're going to stay with them. The communion of the saints. God reconciles us to himself through Jesus and brings us together with God's people to rejoice in one another's company, to have communion with God and with one another. And he provides us with all that we have made of. Joseph provides uh, his brothers abundantly. In verse 21 to 23, uh, there's a description of the carts being loaded up with the best of Egypt, the finery of Egypt, garments, grain, bread, all kinds of provisions. And then as they go off, uh, as they leave the, the city, there's that exhortation from Joseph. I like to think of it as, as given in jest, you know, tongue achievement. Don't quarrel with one another on the way. Beautiful scene. One cloud remains, and that is that they're going back to meet up with Jacob. They're going to have to explain to Jacob what they had done. Uh, isn't it wonderful that uh, there is a veil drawn discreetly over Uh, what must have been for them a painful experience because the overwhelming sense of this chapter is one of joy, one of of delight in restored relationships. Jacob initially seems to have so much shock, he's stunned. The the impression is given that he's on the point of fainting and only when uh, he's reassured and sees the carts we're told that his spirit revived. I will go and see him before I die. Friends, this is a wonderful, wonderful chapter. And perhaps practically for us, what we need to take from it into the week is is this big, big doctrine of providence, the providence of God. Uh, If we will embrace it, then we will have something of the poise of Jacob, of Joseph in all of life's circumstances. Uh, sweetness in bitter times. Humility when times go well for us. We hold on to, to that, that, that uh, prince of verses. We know that God works all things. Imprisonments, betrayals, accusations. All things together for good. For those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. It's often remarked, that's a comprehensive verse. It's not just the good things, the nice things, the sunny things. All things. He's a mighty God. He loves his people. We need to trust him and walk in his sunshine, even in dark days. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for, again, pointing us to Jesus. We thank you for uh, the wonderful way in which Joseph 
prefigures for us the beauty, the grace, the compassion of our Savior. Lord, may this, this wonderful uh, chapter uh, help us in whatever it is you have ahead for us, that laying hold of the, the glorious truth of your providence, that you preserve and govern all your creatures and all their actions. We might go uh, with confidence, uh, knowing that our lives are in your hands, that we are not uh, victims of a chaotic world, but that your hand is upon every detail. We bless you for that, and for your word, and for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's sing now from Psalm 37. <clears throat>